Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. The most enjoyable and kind of challenging climbing on Everest is on the summer day. Because you're climbing along this ridge, the summit ridge, and you have a three three thousand meter drop down into Tibet on your right hand side, and on your left hand side, it's about a two and a half thousand meter drop down into base camp. Hi, this is journalist Caroline Stephen, and this is Talking Trading. Have you ever wondered what it's like to climb Mount Everest? Last week on the show, we heard from mountaineer Patrick Hollingworth on the top five mountain ranges around the world, which have made him as a person. We started the show in New Zealand and ended up in Nepal for the big one, Mount Everest. And today we pick up where we left off with Patrick at base camp for Patrick's spellbinding climb to the rooftop of the world. Louise Bedford has her own investing mountain to climb in mind power today. And just like Patrick, she uses baby steps to take it to the top. Here's Louise, and then we go to Patrick at Mount Everest. In Richard Dawkins' book called Climbing Mount Improbable, he presents a parable to help explain the concept of evolution. He suggests that the evolution from an amoeba to a fish took place in small incremental steps, one tiny step at a time. Each step in isolation assisted with the goal of survival, but gradually it morphed the creature into an animal with unique abilities. Now, taking this analogy to how you learn about the stock market, picture yourself at the base of a mountain. One side is a sheer cliff jagged and impossible to climb. On the other side, it's a gentle slope, reaching all the way up to the summit. In our case, let's imagine that the summit represents investing success. When many investors start out, they try to take this massive leap up the sheer side of the cliff, only to fall over and damage their self-esteem, as well as their trading bank balance. Rather than take the small, sometimes boring foundation steps to reach trading success up the gentle slope, they hurl themselves upwards. They use 25 out of 24 hours a day to learn about the markets. They take out a second mortgage on their house and throw themselves into the pointy end of FX trading. Where are you on your investing journey? Are you at the beginning? Have you already started to climb the mountain? Are you the type of person who has tried to take that big vertical leap? Or are you willing to gradually but persistently pursue your goal? I suggest you take the baby steps needed to help you climb the mountain. Sure, 
it's not as explosive as trying to take a huge vertical leap, but it's the only way every successful trading investor has learned their skill. Hi, I'm Janine Alice, founder of Boost Juice Bars and Shark on Shark Tank, and I listen to Talking Trading. So let's go to Nepal. May 2010, you stood on the rooftop of the world, Everest, which stands almost nine vertical kilometres into the Earth's atmosphere. I get tears when I say that, just imagining it. In our interview on Talking Trading, you took us through Base Camp, two, three, four, Summit Ridge, Summit and down. Can we go back there? Mm, Yeah, I haven't haven't thought about Everest in in quite a while actually so happy to happy to go back there fantastic can we start at base camp and then move to the icefall yeah i mean it's it's a pretty amazing experience being in base camp i mean if you're there during the the climbing season which is april and may you know it's a really big community i think you've probably got up to a thousand people essentially living there um and you, you know it's a it's a real global community you've got climbers from all around the world um, you've got you know, a, a huge number of, of Sherpas working sort of based out of base camp. Um, so there's always lots of activity and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty awesome kind of place to meet different people. I mean, it's also been a bit of a tragic place, particularly in recent years, you had the icefall collapse in 2014, and then you had the, the huge avalanche in 2015, which kind of took out base camp. I think it killed about 20 people um so yeah it's been it's probably it's it's um it's certainly experienced its fair share of trauma over the past few years but yeah i mean it's a wonderful place to be you know you're surrounded by these huge huge mountains and and whenever you're there if you're a climber it's your kind of your your respite your home away from home whilst you're kind of resting in between sorties up onto the mountain you're in a Um, tent but once yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, in a, so in a tent, and what each base camp normally has, you know, you have your own individual sort of sleeping tent, and then you'll have communal quarters in a much bigger tent, and you'll have a cook tent, and you know, so so it's it's it really is a bit of you've got your own little community within a within a broader kind of community. So yeah, it does it does become your home away from home because you do spend quite a bit of time there, and then, and then and also it enables you to kind of decompress from some of the stresses of being yeah. up on the mountain, and certainly because base camp is at the foot of the ice wall, so you can always you know, literally the first thing you see in the morning when you get out of your tent is this huge kind of collapsing glacier coming down towards you and and you can see people climbing through it and, and you know, you know that you'll be needing to go back there again and it's always pretty stressful moving through through the icefall. Um, it's, it's a really dangerous environment. It tends to fall over all the time. Like big, big blocks of ice as big as houses will, will, will have shifted, shifted from one day to the next. So you need to move pretty quickly through there. So it's definitely a um, it's definitely a pretty sort of stressful place to be, and you're definitely running the gauntlet a bit when you're in the icefall. It's a place where yeah. you tie three ladders together and you cross crevasses that are effectively bottomless. Yeah, that's right. You get these really big crevasses which are they're black, so you can't see the bottom of them, um, and so you're trying to kind of get over those. And um, but yeah, the biggest risk in there is not so much falling into a crevasse, but rather having part of the actual the whole structure itself collapse and. Um, so that's what happened in 2014 when I think it was 16 Sherpas were killed, um, and, and a good a good friend of mine, Ankaji Sherpa, was was killed in that in that incident as well. So um, I'm sorry um, to hear that. Yeah, my son, my son Harry, his middle name is Ankaji. Yeah. 
um, named after. Um, but Angaji was um, he was a, a, a one of the best Sherpa climbers and just an absolute legend as well. So yeah, he's um, he's missed. Mm. So then above above the icefall, we head up to Camp One and Camp Two and Camp Three and then Camp Four. Um, hang on, hang and, on, hang on. But it's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> camp Two, Camp Two. What's Camp Two like? How so, cold are well, we talking? Well, both Camp One and Camp Two are in this feature known as the Western Coombe. So Coombe <laughs> is a Welsh word for valley, and it's essentially it's it's like a long valley that's probably. I don't know how many kilometers long it would be, but it's 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 so it's on snow, it's on a glacier, and you've got these really steep walls of Everest and Lhotse, which is the uh, fifth highest mountain on Earth, and then Nutsi, which is a, a seven thousand nine hundred high meter mountain. So you're surrounded by these huge kind of icy cliffs. But interestingly, during the daytime, it actually gets really really hot because the sun kind of bears down on, it and then um, the heat can get trapped in the valley. So most people don't realise, but you get incredibly sunburnt whilst mountaineering. Um, the the snow and the ice, it, it just reflects a lot of that, um, the UV rays right back at you. So that's quite strange. Um, but 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 climbing from Camp 1 to Camp 2, it's not even climbing, it's basically walking because right. it's, it's not very steep. From Camp 2, that's when you start encountering some of the steeper climbing and that, that takes you up what's known as the Lhotse face. And, and so, so Lhotse is Everest's next door neighbour and it also happens to be the fifth highest peak on earth. And so you kind of climb halfway up Lhotse and that's where you put your third camp. And so mm-hmm. that's where you've got really steep ice. You've got, you know, maybe it's the, some sections of 45 to 50 degrees, so pretty steep. Um, um, and so you, the, 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 the tents, you basically the, the platforms for the tents are kind of cut out of the snow and the ice. And then, yeah, so camp three is halfway up the Lhotse face. And then to get up to camp four, you kind of climb the, neck, the, 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 the second half of the Lhotse face. And that then puts you up on a saddle between Lhotse on one side mm-hmm. and Everest, the summit on the other side. And that's is, where you launch your... Which is the camp where position. a lot of people have fallen to their deaths going to the toilet during that, the that's, that's That's camp three, where if you're not roped in, it's pretty easy to sort of to slip over and, and fall. Um, so that's a yeah, that's a pretty extreme place to to put to put to put a tent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So camp four, you're in the the valley, ready for the summit climb. What time do you start the summit climb? Um, well, it's, yeah, it's really interesting because these days, I think as technology is getting better, teams are generally climbing much faster than they used to. Um, so back in the day, teams used to sort of be leaving at, um, you know, 10 o'clock in the evening mm. and not summiting until, you know, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. I think my recollection is we left at about, we left pretty early as well. We left at about 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening, yeah. And so you climb through the night. Um, and so, so Camp 4 is at 8,000 metres. And then mm. so... Now, to put that in context, there's about a quarter the amount of oxygen at 8,000 metres that there is at sea level due to the, like the, the atmospheric pressure is less, so less oxygen molecules to breathe in. Um, so you're moving pretty slowly. Um, and we, we got to this feature known as the balcony, which is at about 8,500 metres just on, on sunrise. Um, and it then took another five hours of climbing up the southeast ridge, over the south summit, up the Hillary Step, and then onto the main summit because we summited it at about ten o'clock in the ten o'clock in the morning from memory, 
So it was a long time, 12 hours. And as I said, these days, 12 hours is quite slow going. But, um, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the climbing itself is really enjoyable. The, 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 the most enjoyable and kind of challenging climbing on Everest is on the summit day because you're climbing along this ridge, the summit ridge, and you have a 3,000-metre 3, drop down into Tibet on your right-hand side. And on your left-hand side, it's about a 2,500-metre drop down into base camp. And yeah, at some, some moves, you're literally looking straight down beneath your feet and you can see two and a half kilometres down that way. And um, I remember putting, you get what's known as a, as a, as a, a cornice, a fracture line, which, which is from overhanging snow on one side of the, um, of the summit ridge. And you get little fracture lines, which suggest it's about to fall off. And I mistakenly put my foot into a fracture line. And I remember like I could, through this slot in the snow, I was looking down and I could see cloud beneath my foot and that was like 3,000 meters down um so it's pretty wild it's pretty wild it's pretty wild it's it's you know it's, it's effectively the most remote part of the earth possible or at least one of the more remote parts on earth and um to be walking along this really or climbing along this really narrow kind of undulating ridge and I remember at the time thinking this is like this is like, you know, probably like what, what a cricketer feels, like a test test cricketer feels when they walk onto Lords for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, so many kind of, you know, famous cricketers have gone before them. And I was really overwhelmed. I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm sort of literally walking in the footsteps of, of you know, Tenzing Norgay and Ed Hillary and so many, you know, I, it was it was pretty surreal. Yeah, it was pretty surreal to be up there. Yeah. So you watched yeah. the sunrise. How was that feeling? Yeah, it was it, it was it was stunning. It was stunning um, because as the sun was rising, I remember two things in particular. One was because you because you're up so high, you can see the sun rising well before the sun is actually rising lower down. And I remember looking down into this valley over into Tibet, and it would have been about four vertical kilometers down where I saw a light of a car. I think it was a car. I forget whether it was a, a hut or something, but there was a light on. I remember thinking, isn't that fascinating? I can see somebody four kilometers down in Tibet and they're probably just getting up for their day's work, you know, whether they're a, a whether they're a, you know, a yak herder or whatever, but thinking they probably don't realize there's somebody looking down on them from near the summit of, of Everest. So that was pretty amazing. And the other thing I remember looking South down over India and the, because it, you know, it's late May, the monsoon is starting to kind of build. Um, and you can literally look down on these monsoon storm clouds and, um, you could see lightning flashing and it's, I, I don't know if you've ever been on a plane and seen a storm from above, but it's mm-hmm. pretty surreal. And, and you get the, you know, just these sort of yellow and orange pulses of light across the clouds. And we were literally kind of looking down on that. And that was, that was, again, that was a surreal moment. And, and I, I, that was probably the most, what's the word sublime moment of my life. I think. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I know it sounds cliche to say this, but I've said this a number of times, but at that point in time, I've, I never felt more kind of connected to this notion of like humanity globally, almost like, you know, seeing somebody down there from such a long way and feeling like I could almost kind of reach out and touch them. I, it really overwhelmed me. I just remember thinking, you know, it was, it, you know, the whole notion of we, you know, we're all kind of on one small planet and um, it's an amazingly beautiful planet and, you know, and then I can go into cliches about, you know, the need to look after our planet, which I completely agree with. But but at that point in time, I just I do remember feeling 
so privileged to be up there because that's not a view. It's probably a view that I think, I don't know, a few thousand people have had at most. And I can, I can kind of, only, I could get a little bit of insight into what it must like to be an astronaut to mm. see the earth, you know, because although it was not, it was not that perspective, it, it was definitely a pretty unique perspective that, that, that just gave you a sense of the kind of the grandeur of the, you know, of, of the planet. And it was pretty awesome. Yeah. Can you see the curvature of the earth up there? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you tend to notice it more so when you take a photograph and you look at the photograph and you can see it really clearly. Um, But I mean, you definitely have a sense of being higher than anywhere else. And it definitely is a sense of it's a, it's a wild place to be, you know, it's, like human beings shouldn't be up there, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, you can't survive up there, you know, you, you're living on borrowed time when you're up there. Um, and as much as you'd love to kick back and kind of enjoy the view and stuff for them, you can't really do that. It's, you know, it's bitterly cold. It might be minus 20 degrees and you've got to, you've got to get back down the mountain. It's, it, it, it's effectively one of the most, if not the most exposed places you could be on earth. So it's not a place to kind of linger for too long. You got to get down quickly. Is there a pressure to get down? Do you feel this impending sense of doom if you don't? Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, given that this for me was now eleven years ago, it was you know, and you know, the, the you know the, the the events of '96 were still relatively fresh in people's mind, which was oh, where you know, yes, I think into thin air. Killed. Yep, absolutely. And you know, you know, a number of people. It was well known that people die on the on the descent. Um, you know, people give everything to get to the summit, but of course. It, it's it's equally difficult getting back down to camp four. Um, and, you know, if you get weather that springs up really quickly, I mean, you can't, you're not going to get it. You can't affect a helicopter rescue up there. Um, basically above 8,000 metres, you can't, it's very, you can't rescue somebody. So um, it's, it, it definitely feels, yeah, very, very exposed. But what I find really interesting is, you know, that was 11 years ago and, and increasingly there's been even more and more commercial expeditions on the mountain. Um, and these days you're getting, I, I think, even, you know, more novice climbers up there. And I suspect that the death rate has actually gone down. Um, but having said that, I suspect that's because there's probably more people climbing Everest each year. Um, but... Death rate's gone down, right. but more people are climbing. You mean death rate's gone up because more people are climbing? Oh, no, I'm actually saying, no, no, I'm saying that compared to the the actual, you know, the, the likelihood of you dying on descent from the summit of Everest has probably decreased mm. because more people have actually been climbing Everest and, you know, there haven't been any disastrous storms over the past few years, but that'll happen again, no doubt. But I, it's really interesting. I mean, when I was there, you know, I mean, I, so I was there in 2010. Um, I had the first model of the GoPro um, head cam. They, they, they'd only released them a few months earlier. And so I was like, yeah. oh, cool, I'll get one of these. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I was able to, to build a really successful speaking career in the first few years post Everest was I had all this footage that nobody else yes. ever had yes. because I had access to this simple, this little head camera. Whereas these days, everybody's wearing GoPros, and of course, back then, um, I think Instagram might have existed, but it wasn't widely used. Whereas these days, you're now getting people who are Instagramming on the mountain, and um, and which is pretty wild. Um, but I also think it's kind of attracting a bit of a different crowd. I think it's I think it's definitely attracting a crowd of of non mountaineers who are kind of um, 
who are kind of using the mountain to um, maybe help build their profile a bit. And I'm sure they love mountaineering as well. If you didn't love mountaineering, you, it would be nearly impossible to climb Everest. But, um, but these days, I think you, there's a lot of people kind of who are leveraging it, you know, a little more for their, their own careers and all that kind of stuff. that's it for today. That is the rooftop of the world. It gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Next week, we ask Patrick about the mindset of mountaineering, what it takes to climb such hostile conditions and why on earth he'd want to do it at all. The journey continues with Patrick Hollingworth next week. I'm Caroline Stephen here at Talking Trading and Trading Game. Take care. As always, if you like this show, please be sure to tell a friend. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcast and make sure you give us a big fat five-star review. You'll also notice that Talking Trading doesn't use sponsors and barely advertisers. This is because Chris Tate and Louise Bedford fund this show from tradinggame.com.au. If you'd like to get Louise's five-part free e-course, register at tradinggame.com.au. So until next week, happy trading. The views represented on Talking Trading are generally nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regards to your own situation.